message in the book of 1 Corinthians today, and the second last message that I'll be preaching at least for a while as, as your uh, teaching pastor, and I was going to leave the, the rest of Corinthians to Kevin Armstrong, he's actually, his very last assignment was to do, to read through a commentary and uh, kind of do a report on that. Uh, of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have any questions that I haven't answered and that the, the messages haven't answered, I'm sure you can go to him because uh, he's got a lot more book learning than I do now. So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we are today. I'll invite you to just join me in that passage. And... Um, it is quite a long chapter, so I'm not going to be reading the whole um, passage together, but I will stop in each section, we'll read each section and address uh, what is uh, dealt with there. I'll have to I'll just begin by saying I've been ministered to by this passage now for about a month. And... One of the verses in scripture that I think is maybe often misquoted and glibly quoted is Romans 8 verse 28. And who can quote that just offhand? I'll start with you off. All things 
work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And I don't want to be selfish, I don't want to be vain, I don't want to say that I'm special, but I've seen the truth of those words these last few weeks. As uh, the Lord ordained, um, who knows when, that I would be preaching on this very passage through the whole time of my mother's decline into um, the consequent or the uh, the end results of Alzheimer's and to see her uh, descend and and then give up her last breath. I had the privilege even of filling in for the pastor that didn't show up for the care home. And I'd already been preparing for 1 Corinthians 15, the, the truth of the gospel and the resurrection. And then I spoke at my mom's funeral as well. And this passage was just all over my thoughts. So now this is, and I've also preached one message on the first 11 verses here. So it's one of those things where you can see, I can see the Lord is uh, giving me assurance that he, He's got this. You know? And to see my mother pass in peace and to know that the moment that she was absent from her body, she was present with the Lord. And that her spirit is now in that frail, emaciated, ravaged body will be raised again, incorruptible. Um, and that her mind will be finally renewed um, and perfect. So I'm going to speak this morning about, or this afternoon, about the resurrection of the dead. Now the last message that we had here, that I have preached anyways, we've had two on Colossians from, from Jordan and from Jeff Greening. But the last one that I preached was called the resurrection of Christ. And I had mentioned then that the Corinthian church had a creedal understanding of the resurrection of Christ. They would say, this is what we believe, and they could rattle off some ancient version of the Apostles' Creed, I presume, where, where they would know that this is our doctrine, Christ rose from the dead, but did it really impact their lives? And of course, the resurrection is right in the middle of the gospel. The resurrection is, in part, what gives the gospel its power. Imagine if Christ came to die for our sins and forgave our sins and then we sinned again and we had no advocate, we had no one to sit at the right hand of God and say the blood that I shed has covered this sin. If Christ were not raised from the dead we would have no advocate at the right hand of the Father. We would have no one pleading our case. We would have no one uh, who lives, ever lives to make intercession for us. We would be so hopeless. So as we continue here, um, we see that the Apostle Paul in verses 12 down to the end of the chapter is addressing the sad fact that there are some, um, at least that's associated with the church in Corinth, who have a creedal profession 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and would gladly say, I believe Jesus is raised from the dead, but they have a practical um, disconnection. They have a cognitive dissonance between what they say they believe and how they actually live. And in fact, they're influenced more by their culture than they are by their doctrine because functionally, they accept the cultural belief that people don't raise from the dead. And yet, confessionally, they say that Christ is raised from the dead, and they haven't seen that these two are inconsistent. Now, I would ask us to examine ourselves carefully and examine our church culture carefully and ask, do we live functionally as though we believe there is no resurrection from the dead? Do we pursue things in this world as though they are the end in themselves? Do we, as our text says, as we'll read later on, do we live and eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we will die? As if we've got to get all our living in now and we are, um, we're just, and then at the end of that it just kind of drops off because that's it. Now I'm not, I'm not saying this, I certainly hope none of you feel accused by this, but it is very easy given the culture that we live in, which is so similar to the, first, the early Corinthian culture, which was a Greek culture. It is so easy for us to slip into that complacency and that um, living as though we are still citizens of this world and not understanding that we're like Abraham. We're looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. All right. So I'm just going to lay out my points here. We may only get done three of these. I have five, but I'll just lay them out so that you know what we'll be considering. First of all, starting in verse 12, we're going to see, first of all, we're going to see that the denial of the resurrection is problematic. Paul is going to systematically lay out for us some of the problems if we do not accept them, if we do not truly believe in the resurrection of the body. And the second point in verses 20, 20 uh, all the way down to 28 will be that the reality of the re resurrection is powerful. The word powerful and the word resurrection belong together. It is the greatest expression of the power of God that uh, I think we see anywhere. It's not, it's not bringing life out of nothing. It is bringing life out of death. And... Um, this power applies to everyone who is in Christ, which is really an amazing thought. And thirdly, we're going to look at the fact that the implications of the resurrection are practical. The fact that Christ raised from the dead, the fact that we will be raised with him if we are in him, that has very practical implications for our lives. It will affect how we live. And if it does not affect how we live, then the question is, have we truly received this good news that Christ is raised from the dead? Then we're going to see that the body of the resurrection is perfect. None of us, even the little children that are here, none of us has a perfect body. I remember when Finley was born and seeing the pictures, he just looked so perfect. And yet, he had problems with his heart. He had problems breathing. The doctors had to, to go in and repair this perfect-looking little body. And, and now he looks perfect again. But Finley, like all of us, is 
going to grow old. He's going to suffer consequences. The consequences of original sin. He will have disease. He will have pain. He will have to work and labor by the sweat of his brow to provide for his family. And yet, the resurrection promises us perfect body. A body that is not um, affected in any way by sin, that is not subject to evil desires because those evil desires will be gone. And finally, if we have time, we'll see that the, the victory of the resurrection is profound. There is no word that better, or there is no event in history that is more synonymous and more illustrative of victory than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where sin was defeated, where death was defeated. All right, so let's begin in verse 12. And the first consideration here we will see is that the denial of the resurrection is problematic. I was going to say it's pitiful, because the text uses the word pitiful, but it's really people who deny the resurrection that are pitiful, not the, not the denial itself. But let me just read these verses. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's the confession, right? If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of you means some of you in the church. There are people who are skeptical of the resurrection of the dead because it does not make intellectual sense to them. In Acts chapter 17, Paul addresses Athens and they mock him afterwards because he seems to be proclaiming in Christ the resurrection of the dead. This is the major point of attack for the enemies of the gospel. And for some reason, there are people even within the church who are denying this resurrection. Now in our day and age, people deny the resurrection in more subtle ways. There is a liberal way of thinking that denies the importance of the physical resurrection of Christ. Uh, there are extremely liberal folks that would think that uh, the resurrection has more to do with a, a spiritual state of remembering the example of Jesus Christ and carrying those principles forward. But scripture is very clear as we saw the la in the last message from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11 that this is a a well-established and an impeccably established historical fact that Jesus Christ did raise from the dead bodily. All right, so so the, Paul's saying, how can you, some of you say this? Your, your creedal profession that Christ is raised from the dead does not match with your cultural assumption that this, these things just don't happen and there is no resurrection from the dead. They believed implicitly that uh, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, the, the earth, earthly realm was so corrupt that there was no way that anyone from earth could ever ascend to the he heavenly realm. It's, maybe it was even a kind of proto-gnosticism. Then it says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now that should seem very obvious, but Paul is challenging their assumption. If, you, if you're if you're living your life as though you believe this life is all that there is and there's no resurrection, 
And you are denying the fact that the God-man, the God who became man and lived and died as a man, you, you are saying that that representative of humanity was not raised from the dead either. Christ is united with humanity through his incarnation. What he did, he did for us. What he did was representative for all who would believe in him. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now you're going to see a logical uh, domino argument here. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Vain faith expresses itself in strange ways. It expresses itself in someone um, crying out, Allahu Akbar, and running into a building with a, a vest full of dynamite and blowing it up. That's vain faith. It's faith in something that isn't real. Our faith is as vain as Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism if Christ is not raised from the dead. None of them serve a risen Savior. Not they, serve the, they have an example of a prophet, but they have no one interceding for them. They have no advocate. They have no high priest. They're on their own, and it's their own merit that either tips the scale or doesn't. In Buddhism, it's right meditation, right belief, and right, or right practice, but there's no Savior. And it's the same for any other religion. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You're trusting in something meaningless. All it is is empty ritual. You might as well be worshipping a wooden god if Christ has not risen from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Oh, I think I missed something here. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. So it's Paul saying, if, if Christ is not raised, I'm a liar. If Christ is not raised, discount my testimony because I saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. I've testified to you and others have testified that Christ has raised. 500 of us saw him at one time. But if he wasn't raised, we're all liars. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So let's give God a little bit more credit here. Let's acknowledge that he is the God that raises the dead. Let's acknowledge that he is the God who gives life to the dead. Let's acknowledge spiritually that though we are dead, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ gave his life for us, and through the effectual preaching of the Word of God, He brings us to life, not by the blood, not by, not by the will of man or of or of anything else, but by the living and enduring Word of God. Spiritual life comes from a God who raises people from the dead, just as God raised Christ physically from the dead, and just as He will raise all who are in Christ at the last day. He will raise us all from the dead. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, 
and you're still in your sins. Seems to suggest if Christ had died and not raised again, if he'd gone all the way to the cross and said it is finished and, and died, that we would still be in our sins. I'll try to explain that a bit in a moment. It's also saying this, verse 18, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep in Christ is just another way of saying dying. It means you will never see them again. There will never be a joyful reunion. But that is the end of their life. And um, whatever they've been able to suck out of this life as far as goodness and grace, graciousness and pleasure, whatever, that's all they get. That's the end of it. It's perished. They're annihilated. That's it. And if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, and if they're still in their sins, and those who have already died have perished, or never to be risen again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So here, here is a cultural connection. How much of the church lives as though we have life in this, have hope in this life only. Well, I, I, I know most of you quite well, and I think that we have hope beyond this life. And I've been at my mother's funeral, I've been at other funerals where there's a lot of grief, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, grieve as those who have hope. We grieve because Death is still reigning. Death is still taking people away from us. Death is still our enemy. And death has not yet been defeated. But we have hope because we know that death has been defeated already. And that the full expression of that defeat of death will come at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're most to be pitied if we only have hope in this life. We shouldn't hate atheists. We should pity them. Because their eggs are all in one very small basket called 70 or 80 or 90 years in this world. And that's it. I wanted to go back to one phrase here. Um, yeah, if Christ has not been raised, you're... Uh, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It, it uh, places the spotlight on the resurrection. Now we often, and we rightly refer to Jesus Christ, His sacrifice on the cross and His shed blood as the remedy for our sins. But listen to a couple of verses from the book of Romans. Romans 4 verse 25 who, that is Christ, was delivered up for our trespasses. In other words, he was killed. He was killed for our sins. Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions and raised for our justification. So our sins are paid for through the blood of Christ. He was raised for the purpose of our justification. Now when 1 John says we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and in Hebrews says we have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. This means that God, that His completed sacrifice is being applied to our life for our justification, and that He is 
personally advocating that. He is alive, and at the end, when, when uh, his, it is, comes time to call his own, then everyone for whom he has died will be brought to the Father, and he will not be missing one of them. All of his sheep will come to him. Not one of them will be missing. That's justification. And it would not be possible if Christ were not raised. He is executing, or he has executed justice on our behalf. And he has uh, satisfied God's justice on our behalf. And he will justly bring us to God so that God may be just and the justifier of all who come to God through him. Romans 5.10 says, For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more that we are, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So you see, Christ is actively saving us. He is actively saving us. He is actively keeping us. And this is something that only a living person can do. A dead person, a dead deity, cannot actively do any of these things. Now, just to put this all into perspective, the, the, uh, the importance of the resurrection and why denying the resurrection is problematic, this is how things work in heaven right now. The former priests were many in number. You remember the priests in the Old Testament who would serve in the temple? There was one high priest who would um, be qualified if he were found pure to enter into the, the Holy of Holies and make atonement. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Now, now we're talking specifically about the, the high priest. When the high priest died, there had to be another high priest. And there was kind of a succession. Remember in John, we talked about Annas and Caiaphas. There was a father-son connection there. All right. So the former priests, they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That means that no matter how great the sin no matter how depraved, no matter how unworthy, all who come to God through Him, He is able to save them. There is no one who will be lost, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, if I were to stop right there, you, you might think, well, He always lives. There doesn't seem to be any reference to His death there, but listen to this. For it is fitting that indeed we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now he started off exalted above the heavens, and then he came down, he condescended, and he became a servant, and he became obedient unto death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So when it says he was exalted above the heavens, it implies that he, uh, I don't know if the word is right, but was demoted. He was brought down. But listen to this. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, 
and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So you have a risen and exalted high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, who has also by his own blood paid once for all the price for the sins of all who belong to him. That is the power of the resurrection. That is what makes Christianity powerful and not pitiful. We have a living Savior. We have a living High Priest who is one with God the Father, yet seated. He is, he is, is the Word. He is with God, and He is God, and He is also an exalted man who has become man to pay our penalty. So the denial of that, that resurrection is problematic for Christians. We are most pitiful if that reality is not down deep in our hearts and if we do not truly believe that because Christ lives, we live. Secondly, let's notice that the reality of the resurrection is powerful. Let's read in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now if you uh, wanted to practice a little eisegesis or narcissus, um, nar narcissistic eisegesis, reading yourself into the text. And if you wanted to kind of have a, a fuzzy gospel and an inclusive gospel, you could simply say all means all, and that's all all means all the time. So as in Adam, all die, okay, everybody dies because of Adam, so in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, we all get in. We're all saved through Christ. But that's not what it says. So also, in Christ shall all be made alive. We are born into Adam. We are born into Adam. We cannot shake the Adamic nature. Sin dwells within us. We are completely um, depraved in the sense that though there is good within us, Every aspect of our character is tainted by sin. And we can thank Adam's nature and Adam's sin for that. But we, as we are born into Adam, in a fleshly way, we are born into Christ in a spiritual way. So those who are born into Adam die. Those who are born into Christ live. No one else gets brought out from Adam and into Christ, except for those who are in Christ. And this comes by the new birth. As an, as an Adam, all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, and all is defined narrowly as those who are in Christ. But each in, its own or, in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So, again, he's already argued that if Christ is not raised from, the, if, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not 
raised from the dead, and then you are all still in their, your trespasses and sins. But now he's telling us how this works. Christ was the first to be raised from the dead. The first fruits, it's like at the beginning of harvest, and you have this, uh, this first little apple or something, and, and it's, it's a sign that the harvest is on the way, and it is a, it's a very hopeful thing. So Christ was like the first fruits of the harvest. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So at the end, when Jesus comes, there is going to be a great ingathering of fruit, of resurrected fruit. Christ being the first of that. And then we wait for the rest of the harvest. And when it is God's time, he returns and gathers all whom he has purchased with his own blood. He gathers them all to himself and presents them before his Father. So there's an order. Christ, then the first fruits, which are, are all who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. You see, the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection is powerful. Because Jesus lives, and because he is now waiting for that ingathering harvest. And because he is now waiting to make all his enemies subject to him, he is able, as God, and as, um, as the glorified God-man, Jesus Christ, he is able to come and execute justice and destroy every rule, every authority, and every power. And actually reign in the world that was designed to serve him. For he must first reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That should be an ominous thought for those who curse Christ and who deny him and who mock his bride and who try to tarnish her reputation. says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the resurrected Christ is going to destroy death. Not just in a spiritual sense, but death is done, period. There's a book that I may be not intelligent enough to understand, but it's by um, John Owen, and it's called The Death of Death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. And of course, the, the, the way that death is defeated through the death of Christ is that Christ lives, that he rose from the dead, and death is gone, it's done. No more power. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Which basically means that Everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ. God has given him authority over everything. And yet, the Father still remains um, ontologically, or um, in, in the sense of authority, he remains authority. And that's why Jesus will present his whole kingdom to the Father. And then God will be all and in all. Um, so, it's, that's, uh, verse 27 is basically saying that the Son does not rule over the Father. That's what it's saying. God is, the Godhead rules over all, but 
in the sense of submitting to authority, the, the Son submits to the Father. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be also subjected to Him who put all things under in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So, the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, it has these eschatological, it has these last things, end times consequences. Christ will reign. He will reign more than the Christmas carol says He reigns in our hearts. He will reign on this earth. He will reign over heaven and earth. Uh, the description of Him reigning over this earth is He will reign with a rod of iron. There is incredible power unleashed because Jesus has risen from the dead. And this qualifies Him to return and accomplish all that He said He would do. So let's go to number three here. We've seen the, the uh, foolishness of denying the resurrection. We've seen that the reality of the resurrection is powerful. Now the implications. The implications or the uh, following results of the resurrection are practical. means immediately useful in our lives, immediately relevant in our lives. We're not just talking about um, by and by. We're not just talking about the physical return of Jesus Christ. How does the resurrection impact us here and now? now Paul says here, otherwise, what do people mean by, by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, we don't baptize on, on behalf of the dead. In fact, I know the Mormons do that, but um, I don't think it's a practice within the Christian church. And I don't think Paul is alluding to a practice within the Christian church. I think what he is attesting to here is the general understanding among the people of Corinth and the people of, of that ancient world that there was life after death and that somehow, some way, maybe we could do something that would have merit in helping our loved one into the next life. Now, he's not validating that concept, but he's saying, in the way that I think Solomon said it, they have eternity in their hearts. It's built into man to know that there is an afterlife, that there is resurrection, that this is not all that there is. That's my best crack at that, because I, I don't understand it any other way than that. But let's get into some, something that is more definite here. He says of himself, the other apostles and other Christians, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. It means he puts his life on the line. It means he is willing to go to places where he knows they will very likely pursue him and beat him and imprison him. Why would I do any of this if my hope was in this life? Why would I subject myself? Why would I die daily? Why would I live with death breathing over my shoulder and, and, and willingly put myself in these situations if I didn't know for sure that there was life beyond, that there was hope beyond this life? He says, what, I do, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13. And though I give my body to be burned. That was not just hypothetical for Paul. He knew that these things could happen 
any time. And he had been at death's door many a time. And in fact, according to our, our text in, in the book of Acts, he was left for dead at least one time. So, that's pretty clear that by my own testimony, by my own life, by the fact that me and the Apostle Paul and countless other Christians are laying their lives down in a test to the reality and the hope of the resurrection. Now here's, here's something that I think is very relevant, especially, especially in this day and age where um, there's a sort of a super grace gospel being proclaimed that uh, Christ has paid for our sins and we need to understand that whatever we do uh, we don't have to own that, we don't have to confess it because our sin is covered and it, if that's taken to an extreme then we continue in sin that grace may abound we don't we don't rightly understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that it wasn't a sacrifice made so that we could live sinfully it was a sacrifice that was made so that we would be made perfect and sanctified and prepared until one day we are perfected when we see Jesus. So listen to this. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I think many people eat and drink as if they're going to die tomorrow. And they would never say it's because I don't believe Jesus is raised. But think about it. If Jesus is raised, if Jesus will return to gather his own to himself, if Jesus is the one who has eyes of fire, who sees into our hearts and knows our deeds, why on earth would we be living and indulging in this life as, this, as if it is all there is? And kind of blinding our eyes to the judgment of our deeds, of our works, that everything that is unworthy will be burned up, and that only those things that are eternal will remain. Are we living here and now for eternal things? Are we living this day in the light of that day, or are we living this day as, it's the, as if it's the only day we've got? Now look what he says to them here. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You see what results when people live in the light of this day instead of in the light of that day. They gather with people of a similar mindset. And those people are people in the world. Because this is the, this is the way they live. Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, perhaps this means that they have not been testifying to the knowledge of God through their words, <clears throat> augmenting that and adorning that with a holy life. And that's a shameful thing when the world looks at the church and they see, they see as though they're seeing in a mirror, they're seeing exactly what they see out in the world. Like the trooper song, everybody's working for the weekend. You know, that's, that's, about, all, that's about all there is. Um, 
It's good to examine ourselves in this way. I'm not accusing But this is how we are to think when we look at this text. We are to examine ourselves. Now I really wanted to get into the uh, resurrected body and how the body is perfect and, and then the victory, the profound victory we have. But I think I'm going to I'm going to leave it there for now. I think we've got enough to digest. But I'd encourage you this week to spend some time meditating on the truth that has just been brought from God's Word here in these, these few verses. And then read Paul's account and his biblical description of what we have to look forward to. He compares our bodies now to a seed and our bodies in eternity to the whole plant. Seeds, leaves, flowers. Something far greater and far better. He says our body here is um, corruptible. Our body there is incorruptible. Our body here is um, I forget the word, but anyway, our body there is glorious. There are there is so much to look forward to, and the victory comes through the victory over death, our enemy. It comes through Jesus Christ. I don't really know how to end this, but I just want you to anticipate. Maybe meditate on that passage. If you've, if you've lost loved ones, read this and understand, understand the hope, the reality. If those loved ones were in Christ, understand what they're experiencing right now. And understand that you've always got a reason to live. And it isn't for this life only. It's for what Christ has accomplished through his death, through his burial and resurrection, and what he will continue to fulfill through his coming again to receive you unto himself. We'll uh, pray now to conclude this part of our service, and I'll just have the elders uh, prepare yourselves. We're going to have our communion. Father in heaven, Lord, it is uh, so easy to rattle off our confession. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. We can add to that some more theology. We can have a, a, a very beautiful and very theologically correct creed. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be so culturally influenced, that we deny the reality that you are a God who raises the dead, that you raise Jesus from the dead, and you will raise us from the dead. You will raise all whom you call from the grave, you will be raised again incorruptible. Pray now that as we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and 
as we rejoice in the new covenant um, in his blood these precious truths of the the resurrection would <coughs> fill us with hope and that because of that we would know that our labor is not in vain. Christ's name.